Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and special VIP co-hosts. Join in on a great conversation today with one of the world's great influencers as they showcase the latest tricks and techniques that made them the game changers they are today. Now, here's Tony D'Urso and his co-host. Welcome to the Spotlight. I'm your host, Tony D'Urso. Joining me today as my co-host is former broadcast journalist and current personal development trainer, Michael Benner. A radio announcer for 40 years, Michael's well-known for his talk shows since 1977 on KABC-AM, KLSX-FM, KCBS-FM, KRLA-AM, and KPFK-AM, which was the only radio program feature in the LA Weekly's Best of 2000 issue. Also, his biography can be found in Marquis's Who's Who in the West 27th edition. Now, on his second career, Michael is an amazing personal development and executive trainer. And you can find out more about him at michaelbenner.com, B-E-N-N-E-R, michaelbenner.com. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Hello, Tony. Uh, nice to participate in one of your shows again. And uh, these are always fun to do, and I'm feeling great and looking forward to the interview with your guest. Fantastic, Michael. And I'm so glad to have you once again on the spotlight as a co-host. So very, very good there. And for our audience, you are listening to the spotlight where we focus on highlighting Hollywood stars, sports greats, and game changers. If you're a fit, we want your interview on the spotlight. We broadcast every Friday at 1 p.m., so please set your calendar to hear from the world's elite. And also, you can catch every episode of The Spotlight on my mobile app. Just go to TonyDurso.com slash mobile from your smart device or your cell phone. And once it loads, the past episodes of The Spotlight will automatically appear in column one. And column two is my other weekly show highlighting elite entrepreneurs called Revenue Chat. All right. Today, we set the stage for the spotlight to chat with author, technology executive, and speaker, David Gianetto. And for our audience, David Gianetto, he's the author of three books, including his latest called Big Social Mobile. He's also named as a thought leader by the American Management Association, Business Finance Magazine, and Consumer Goods Technology Magazine. David's also a frequent speaker, former MBA professor, and U.S. Business Review columnist. He writes for the Huffington Post and Strictly Marketing Magazine. And if that's not enough, he's a former U.S. Army officer and currently the COO of Astia International. Welcome to the Spotlight, David. Hi, Tony. Hi, Michael. It's good to be with you today. Well, great. It's our honor to have you join us. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the Spotlight. I know you're overseas right now and you're, you're fitting this interview, so very, very appreciated. We thank you. Yeah, well, as the name infers, Astia International, we've got people all over the globe. So uh, I, I often get to travel and visit them and clients. So today I happen to be in the UK and heading off to Europe next week. So it's, uh, it's good to see these folks in different parts of the world. Very cool. I love Europe. Well, all right, let's, let's start the ball rolling here, David. Let's see. First things first. How did it all start for you, please? 
Well, uh, that, that's, that's really a long answer because it depends on what aspect of my career you're talking about. I, I think I can really say that there's certain different components of my career that I look back to and I've drawn different aspects of, of my belief or the methods that I'm known for or, or what I've written about or even my own uh, management style perhaps within Astia. You know, even back to being an Army officer, I think, shaped um, what leadership means to me. Uh, but then moving as an ops manager in a company called Airborne Express, which which a lot of your listeners will have heard about, really started me uh, on hands-on management and understanding of what being responsible for bottom line performance really was. And surprisingly, it, uh, it really taught me the power of information. Um, it, it's almost surprising how that happened, but it was my first glimpse into what would then become uh, my actual career, what, what I've written two of the three books about, which is the role of information and the power of that to change behavior of organization and individuals within it. And um, that, that kind of spilled over into information and data management, uh, big data tied into social performance, uh, social social media performance, and um Emerging technology with a and field service management, uh, which which is really at the forefront of where a lot of companies are today. So it's it's a tough answer because so many different um, parts of my life have all come together to into the methodology that that I become known for working with clients. Uh, all the way back to learning how to or teaching myself how to program on a VIC twenty, which a lot of the younger um, listeners will never have even heard of when we had to back up our computers to an actual tape cassette. Um, but teaching myself how to program in middle school has served me well all these years. So it's, it's a real mishmash of things. Wow, I'm impressed, Dave. I don't even remember the VIC-20. <laughs> <laughs> My oldest brother was a computer programmer, and when I went to his office once, he, he would type things on these long cards and put them into the computer I don't know if that was the VIC or not. <laughs> no, that you know that was actually before me. The VIC twenty was was the keyboard that you hooked up to your little black and white television with that that same box that you hooked the Atari up to your television with. Uh, it, it replaced the antenna inputs and it had that little slider, but it was just a keyboard. I think it had five twelve memory in it, uh, so you you really couldn't even write much of a program before you ran out of memory. But it really taught me the basics and how computers think. Um, and you know, even today when technology has come so far and I'm sitting in a meeting, I still understand the fundamentals of how the technology thinks. And a lot of times that will help me navigate through technical problems that, you know, deep technology people sometimes miss because they're, they're caught in such, such detail and such nuance. I see. That's very cool. Now I was just about to ask about some memorable moments in your career, but it's so varied Let's try this. What do you consider are some of the more memorable moments in in your career? I guess pick any of them. You've got so much going. Well, I, I think um, some of the most interesting to me are the ones that really shaped me, even though I didn't I didn't realize at the time that they were going to end up being big things that were cornerstones of of how I would work with clients and what became my first book, The Performance Power Grid, or my third book, Big Social Mobile, uh, and, and even some of the methods on how we develop and implement here at Astia. And I can think all the way back to being a, a pretty young operations manager at Airborne Express, and it was tough times in that company. We were taking the company back from 
uh, Jimmy Hoffa's union at the end of the movie Goodfellas, if anyone's seen that. Uh, that, that was kind of the environment I worked in where the, the Teamsters were used to being in charge and, and the company had an opportunity to take it back and start to manage it in the Northeast, in the New York, Northern New Jersey area as a real profit-driven company, the, the way it always should have been, but they couldn't. And, and it was a very strict union contract, and it was challenging to have any sort of performance metrics, to do anything that would drive um, these very senior drivers who had had the upper hand for a long, long time into doing anything that would improve productivity. There were no productivity standards in any of the contracts. So um, maybe not knowing what else to do, I put this huge whiteboard up out in the warehouse where all the trucks loaded their packages in the morning. And I had this habit of coming in very, we came in at 4.30 in the morning and I would write every driver's name and I would write their route number. And then each day of the week, I would write their stops per on area hour. That's how many stops they did uh, while they were in their service delivery hour, which you might want to think of as a zip code that they would have to deliver to. And I would put that and, and they would vary. You know, Sometimes it would be eight, sometimes it would be 15, but they were getting a sense of how well they compared to each other. And it really did trigger th- this very instinctual, very competitive behavior that, that these you know guys that aspired to be tough guys had. They didn't want to be showed up by their peer group. So just overnight, we saw productivity increase. And then uh, uh, the guys who were giving me trouble, I would replace them on the route. I would put a very junior driver in there who aspired to have a good, juicy route. And that junior driver would just blow the productivity out of the water. Uh, like when that senior guy was on vacation. And then the senior guy would come back from Monday and this junior driver would have doubled their productivity and they'd be embarrassed. And they would give the young guys stern talking to, but those young guys didn't care. They wanted a set route and the money that went along with it. And what we found was that the old timers automatically increased productivity. And it wasn't as good as the, the, the young guys, but it was a way to drive productivity just by using the visibility of information and numbers, a very simple metric that they could all get behind. And, and you know, I still today come back to that story when I'm talking w- with managers and with clients to say, you know, look, don't try to split the atom. Don't try to come up with the perfect measure of measurements. Just put some information out there that's accurate, that's, that's fact-based, and you will find that your good people will respond and and that is really the one of the big nuggets that became the performance power grid which was my first book and and it and it won some awards and and the clients adopted and that's what I became known for as a consultant but that that has followed me all throughout uh of my career so it's it's one of the two real building blocks that came to me back at Airborne Express and and I won't go into great detail with the other one, but you know, in the old days, they had these uh, hardened scanners. They would scan the barcode when they delivered a package, and they would put that into a cradle and would download and automatically print out. In the old days, we still had to print everything. And on the right-hand column of this printout was this uh, letter Y or N for yes or no, and nobody knew what that was there for. But I, I guess because I had been around computers since a very young age, I kind of logically thought, Somebody put it there or the system put it there for a reason. So went on this long research to figure out why, because what I was seeing was a, pa- a pattern in some of the printouts. It would be yes, 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 and then no, 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 and then yes, yes at the end of the day. 
So to, to fast forward after a lot of work, what I figured out is it, it said whether or not the driver scanned the barcode or whether or not they keyed it in by hand. And what that allowed me to do was figure out the drivers that were leaving the dock, delivering their entire route, but only scanning some of them and then taking the day off and sitting at home and punching in the numbers all throughout the day, sitting, watching TV, as painful as that sounds to us. Uh, and then at the end of the day, scanning a few more and coming back. And essentially, their productivity was a fraction of what it should have been. But that was one of the cardinal sins in a union environment. That was stealing time. So by analyzing which drivers were doing that, I was able to show up at their house, take their keys, terminate them on the spot, and go back to the to the shop. Now, it sounds maybe barbaric to some people, but nobody knew how I was able to do that. None of my peers as district managers knew how I was doing that. So I had this insider information by analyzing the data and then I kind of used it in a real-world application to get a real benefit, which was uh, a workforce that was much more responsive, much more honest. And it was just one tiny little nugget. So it, it really centered me on there's power and in information. So that's all the way back as my time as a manager. And since then, I've worked with a lot of tremendously great organizations to, to kind of refine that into the methods that I became known for as a consultant. Wow, Dave, I'm very impressed. It takes a lot of guts to do what you did and go against that type of group and that, that ethnicity and break into it and rechange the whole culture. I grew up in Chicago and I, I have a smidgen of, of the kind of trouble that some of these can occur. And I, I applaud you. I take my hat off. That's, that's brilliant. This is The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and Michael Benner joining me as co-host. Just ahead, we continue the chat with author, technology executive, and speaker, David Gianetto. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. Are you the right fit? We're looking for a few good sponsors that are the right fit for our world-class brand, The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Does your brand fit in with an audience that likes our interviews with Hollywood stars, sports greats, game changers? If so, let's see how we can promote your brand to the best audience to help you grow. Email me at Tony at TonyDurso.com and let's see how we can help. That's Tony at TonyDurso.com. Is it true that a majority of new businesses fail? Check this out. In order to have a successful growing business, there are some vital points that you must know. You must have worked them out thoroughly. They must be synchronized with each other and all employees consultants, and companies that you depend on must know these items and be in agreement with them if your new business is to meet with a high percentage of success. Get it free. The Vision Map. Beat the odds for business success at TonyDurso.com slash vision. Learn how to establish your vision, purpose, long-term objective, and master plan, including strategic and tactical planning. Get the vision map. Beat the odds for business success at TonyDurso.com 
slash vision, V-I-S-I-O-N. I'm busy and so is my family. Leftover pizza and unhealthy takeout isn't really doing it for us anymore. Just ask my bathroom scale. That all changed when I found Freshly. For less than $10 a meal, Freshly delivers six meals a week, always fresh, never frozen, prepared by top chefs and nutritionists using the best, freshest, gluten-free ingredients. The best part is the menu is always new and fresh, just like the food, and it only takes three minutes for me to prepare breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and there's no messy cleanup and no dishes. My family loves the choices and the taste and freshly delivers to my home and my office so I eat healthy all day, every day. If you're tired of the same old cardboard delivery and takeout, try out Freshly.com today and save $20 on your first order using coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. Your taste buds and your scale will thank you. So save 20 bucks today with coupon code VAH639 at Freshly.com. You're listening to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and a special VIP co-host. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDurso.com. Now, back to The Spotlight. All right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on The Spotlight with former broadcast journalist and current personal development trainer, Michael Benner, as co-host. Today's show is with author technology executive, and speaker, David Giannetto. He's an author of three books, including his latest, Big Social Mobile. He is named as a thought leader by the American Management Association, Business Finance Magazine, and Consumer Goods Technology Magazine. All right, and now, back to the chat with David. Well, thank you, but, you know, it was a lot of youth, it was a lot of arrogance, and maybe some stupidity, uh, and I have to say, I'm the byproduct of great mentors. If you looked at every stage of my career from the Army to Airborne Express into consulting, you would see a string of great mentors. So I I think there was a lot of people giving me confidence and teaching me and bolstering me up. Very cool. Thank you. David, I'm curious if uh, we break business generally into product, process, and people. Is there one of those three areas that you think is more critical than the other two or what you favor in terms of rolling up your sleeves and uh, really digging in to improve productivity and profitability? Yeah, I think um, it's it's an area that I have really strong beliefs on, uh, the answer to that question. But there, but there are two different answers. I think there's a difference between building a company, growing it, much more that entrepreneurial mindset. I, I think in that situation, people are the most critical point because it's a, it's a very creative, free-thinking environment that's required to succeed. But once you get out of that stage... Um, where a lot of my time in my career centered is is in this growth mode. And that might occur at 12 million for some companies, 25 for some, 100 for some. It depends on the industry. Um, but, but once you get into this mode where free-form creativity will no longer work, th- there are two schools of thought. One is the school of behavioralists, and, and at a high, very high level to simplify it, they, they believe that if you empower people, you get great results. And the other end of the spectrum are these structuralists, which believe that if you put in well-defined processes, which are often uh, controlled or mandated by technology these days, but if you put in place great structure and process, that 
that will get you there. And the people almost become, uh, they become significantly less important, right? That was the model I was following at Airborne Express. Complete discipline, complete adherence to structure, any violation of that, you terminated your employees. But the downside of that was there was no creativity amongst the employees. Nobody would go the extra mile because we were, we were getting rid of great behavior the same as we were getting rid of bad behavior because the structure was mandated by a company union contract. And that worked in that environment. Uh, well, maybe it didn't because Airborne is no longer with us, but it did work in that environment. Um, for most companies which can't afford that type of drastic uh, approach, I, I really, really believe that in order to grow and to scale a company, you need to provide good structure, just, just the guardrails, some of which is technology, some of which is process or policy. And then within that structure, you put the best people you can find and you give them as much freedom and autonomy and decision-making as, as possible. So you get a blend of great structure but yet the freedom of individuals to execute. And it doesn't mean they can do whatever they want. There is parameters, right? In business, we all have to play according to the rules, whether or not we like them, right? Those are just the rules that your boss sets or the market sets. And you just have to live by them if you're, want, if you're doing your job. So uh, it's an answer where I believe structure overrides if you're in growth mode, but you still have to find a way to let people really take ownership and be empowered within the framework that you provide. And they like that structure too. It's, it's not just serving the company. People are more satisfied when they know the boundaries that they have and, and they, they are not given autonomy one day, but have it taken away the next. They are asked to make decisions and then criticize the next day. That, that's, that's not really, employees or managers don't thrive in that situation. So. Well, I think people in general at every age and every status in a hierarchy uh, enjoy having uh, boundaries, so to speak, and to know clearly what's expected of them. But isn't it, um, do you find it's also important for them to feel like they're stakeholders in the bigger process? Yeah, I I certainly do. Um, You know, I, I think you have to constantly check in with you're, you're a group of employees or even, even yeah, anyone that reports to you regardless of level and let them know what the bigger picture is. And if you're good at it, you let them know what their role is within it and how they impact it. And then, of course, the, the role of information is really to give them insight into what their performance is each day relative to those goals that you set for them, relative to the impact that they can make on the larger organizational objectives. And more importantly, the, the missing piece of the puzzle in the BI world is, all, is often that you not only have to measure performance and give them that, you also have to tell them why performance is what it is so that they can have actionable information and do something about it. And that's really where they get ownership and the feeling of empowerment. But you're, you're creating a shortcut to better results if you not only tell them what their performance is, but right there in the information, you tell them how they can impact it. Um, so, yeah, but, but from a soft aspect, ownership, that sense of ownership is incredibly important. But uh, you know, some people have that. It's just instinctive in their DNA. Your, your best performance, feel a sense of ownership regardless of what you do. You know, they're often the, the employees that get abused the most because they're the go-to people. But even the, uh, even the mediocre performers, you, you've got to give them a sense of ownership. And if you can't get it in them inherently, 
information is a good way to point them at what you need them to take ownership for. Yeah, I get a real sense of uh, balance when you speak. You seem to understand integration, and it's almost as if you're always looking at the, the bigger picture in addition to the elements. Dave, could you please tell us a little bit about your latest book, Big Social Mobile? I do a lot of social media, so I'm very interested in that. Yeah, yeah you do. You do do a lot of social media. I give you my compliments as uh as somebody that works with organizations at higher level, I can see what you're doing, and, and you certainly have your act together as an expert uh, in your field. As, uh, the way I got into um, the world of social media is a bit unusual, and even even to, to call it social media is a bit of a, a misnomer. The, the book takes its name from big data, social media, mobile technology and the way they were all coming together and being used and treated as one larger initiative by companies. And and not surprisingly, that's how I got into the world of social. So I was working with with big, great brands, you know, Fortune 2000 brands and, and creating their information and data programs, figuring out what their drivers of performance were, creating reporting structures, both operational, financial. And, and then all of a sudden, social hit in, in um, you know, the early 2000s. And then shortly thereafter, big data started creeping in. It, it certainly wasn't called that at the time, but they were collecting all this information. And they were dealing with social media experts, you know, people that would tell them how to build a Facebook page, uh, a YouTube presence. Uh, it, we didn't have Twitter at the time, but it was those type of social media practitioners. Those are the experts that um, I was seeing in these organizations, and they were telling them how to drive um, you know, the number of posts. And their, their overarching goal was to increase the number of, of fans, of friends, of followers, those, those type of um, – social media metrics, right? Today, we would, we would look at engagement. We would say that's a pretty good social media metric. And it, it is important. But the executives over, the, over a number of years became a little frustrated by that because they kept looking at all this money they're dumping into social and saying, well, where's the real ROI? I know I'm spending a lot of money. I get it. I need to, to connect with my audience. But when does this stuff actually turn into sales? And all those social media experts really didn't want any part of that. And a lot of your marketing people really still today don't want any part of that kind of conversation. They don't want to be treated as a channel to generate sales leads, which a guy like me certainly believes that that is the the outcome. Yes, engagement, growing your audience, brand awareness, all those things are important. But another meaningful, tangible outcome has to be lead generation or else this is uh, this is all worth it, worthless. So I was out in these big organizations, and because I was the data guy that they were dealing with, they turned to me and, and just said, look, the social media experts, they, they don't care about this data. Can you use it? And you know, I didn't come from the same formal education in, in data and information that, um, that my peer group came from. I came from being thrown into the mix at the United Nations uh, being forced to figure out how to put in place a performance management system at the United Nations. That, that was where I got my baptism at. So I didn't, I wasn't bound by this, the structure that my peer group was because I was never taught that. I was taught what it's like to operate as a manager. So I automatically went to, okay, what are my outcomes I want? How do I drive those things using information? Let me give that information to this group of managers and away they go. They can do better. And I just did the same thing with what became called big data, 
blending it with operational financial data to say, okay, what is the value of this channel called social media? And how many leads is that spilling out? Okay, why is it spilling out great leads? And, and from that origin and working with some great organizations to figure that out, that became the foundation for big social mobile. And, and, and when you have to write a book, you know, you, you have to lay it out in a, in a linear fashion. It's not like this conversation where I can bounce around, but if I'm good at it, most people will follow me. In a book, it's, it's got to be step by step by step because that's how writing occurs. And it forces you to go back and fill in the gaps. And I, so I did the same thing I did with the performance power grid, which is work with these great companies, really asking the question, what are the best companies doing? What is the method they're following? What is the process they're following, right? How do they break down their audience into distinct groups? And what are those groups? And then how do they understand where they're touching them? How do they figure out what their profitable pattern is? How do they adopt that pattern in their own performance? And then how do they leverage that to open up new uh, segments? So that's how the book got fleshed out. It's really talking about how do the best digital operators do it? so that you can then follow step-by-steps throughout the book in each of the chapters that lays out the how-to section. And you can read the questions. You can answer the questions about your own company. Many times you won't be able to answer them and you'll have to go figure it out. But the learning how to, but the figuring it out itself is valuable learning because you're seeing and pulling apart your organization in a way that you never have before. So, so that, that's, that's the origin of it. Uh, like all of the things I write about, you know, even today when I, I write about Astia and what we do in the field service industry or emerging or disruptive technology, it all comes from this, this belief that look at what the best companies are doing and then help other companies follow that same model. Thank you, Dave. And first, thank you for the compliment on my social media. Appreciate it. <laughs> this is The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and Michael Benner as co-host. Just ahead, we're going to find out more from author, technology executive, and speaker Dave Gianetto. But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. The Dream Business community wants to help you with your career and business. Are you ready for accelerated success? Check it out. The Dream Business Community at Tony, D-U-R-S-O dot com slash community. Is it true that a majority of new businesses fail? Check this out. In order to have a successful growing business, there are some vital points that you must know. You must have worked them out thoroughly. They must be synchronized with each other And all employees, consultants, and companies that you depend on must know these items and be in agreement with them if your new business is to meet with a high percentage of success. Get it free. The Vision Map. Beat the odds for business success at TonyDURSO.com slash vision. Learn how to establish your vision, purpose, long-term objective, and master plan including strategic and tactical planning. Get the vision map. Beat the odds for business success at TonyDURSO.com slash vision. V-I-S-I-O-N.
Are you the right fit? We're looking for a few good sponsors that are the right fit for our world-class brand. The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Does your brand fit in with an audience that likes our interviews with Hollywood stars, sports greats, game changers? If so, let's see how we can promote your brand to the best audience to help you grow. Email me at Tony at Tony, D-U-R-S-O.com, and let's see how we can help. That's Tony at Tony, D-U-R-S-O.com. You're listening to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and a special VIP co-host. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at Tony, D-U-R-S-O.com. Now, back to the Spotlight. All right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on the Spotlight with former broadcast journalist and current personal development trainer, Michael Benner, as co-host. Today's show is with author, technology executive, and speaker, David Gianetto. He's a frequent speaker, former MBA professor, and U.S. Business Review columnist. He also writes for the Huffington Post and Strictly Marketing magazine. We continue the chat with some great insights and inspiration and all that. All right, back to the chat with David. I must say from the little bit I've read about your book, Big Social Mobile, and how a business can use this to get results, I must implore the spotlight audience, if you do anything with social media, if you're over anyone with social media, if your company wants to expand its presence, its footprint, its sales, I highly advise picking up Big Social Mobile here by David Gianetto. And David, if they go to your website, can they actually get a copy of the book? It looks like you can, or would you rather them go just to Amazon or something? Well, they certainly could that way, but uh, most of the time I redirect them over to Amazon. You know, those guys do a much better job. And, And I think the one thing that's different about Big Social Mobile than all the great number of social media books, and, and a lot of them are very good, right? If you're trying to build a Facebook presence, Big Social Mobile really isn't the, the right book for you. But if you have a business and you want to understand how to leverage social media or the data that comes from social, what we call big data, or what is the impact of mobile technology, even on your traditional business, and how do you use them? Well, then I, I think that's the book for you because it places these initiatives, big data, social media, mobile technology, as well as all the other initiatives that come with them, into the context of how do they impact business and the bottom line of business. Uh, so sometimes uh, it does get lumped in with social media, but um, it, you know the truth is it's not a label that I'm always comfortable with, although it's, it's, it's a great target audience for it. I got you. And Dave, you're listed as, perhaps this is kind of side by side with that, but you, I noticed you're listed as one of the most respected business intelligence practitioners in the country. That is quite a statement. Can you please tell us about this? (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I come from 15 years in the business intelligence analytics industry. So um, I I mentioned the United United Nations a little bit earlier. I was, uh, I came out of Airborne Express, you know, I was, I was doing well there. I took over um, a large portion of the operations in New York City. It was certainly a very challenging job. Um, with a with a very large group of employees underneath me, but I found I was doing the same thing day in and day out, and I, maybe intellectually I was a little um, bored by that. And and I also 
after a while, just didn't feel that great about coming into work and beating up and bullying Teamsters every day. You know, it, it, that type of work environment really does wear on you. So uh, per, for, for a variety of reasons, I decided that although I had a pretty good career there, I was going to move on. And I went into consulting for a firm called J.H. Cohn, which is now Cohn Resnick, uh, a very well-respected accounting consulting firm. Uh, they're, they're roughly number eight in the country. They're called a super regional, but um, they're structured very similar to the big four, if a lot of the listeners will be familiar with that structure. Um, and and in during my time there, you know, I was tasked with, with picking an area to build a practice. And at the same time, we closed this deal with the United Nations. So my boss, who was the managing partner, and I went into the United Nations and tried to pull apart this question of, how do you turn the, the United Nations into a performance-driven organization? Uh, well, that, that is, a, is a mountain too tall to climb, I think. But I really, really learned a tremendous amount there. And I think we put in place a good system that get people to understand what their performance was. And that became the, the, the starting point for me. And from there, I worked with a bunch of other great brands and, and with a lot of great people to build the enterprise performance management practice of J.H. Cohn. Um, I got a lot of notoriety for the Fujifilm initiative, for the Seattle City Light initiative, which both won the Business Finance Vision Award. Um, and I started writing and speaking, and that eventually culminated in the book deal, the Performance Power Grid, which was the methodology that I was using with these clients. And, and then the book became pretty well respected as a practical guide for how you figure out what the right measures and metrics are in your company um, and how do you take technology that you have, transactional technology, bring data out of that, merge it, turn it into information. Um, and it, it's really this string of great clients. Uh, a lot of those clients I learned a tremendous amount from as I went from one to the other. And if you do something uh, for a long enough time working with such great people, you're bound to get good at it. Uh, so that that's really what... Um, brought me more so to the forefront in the business intelligence and information uh, in industry. Of course, I left there. I left J.H. Cohn and I took my practice and we started the Telos Group, which is a firm that a lot of people will know, and eventually sold that off. And then uh, two years ago, actually this month, uh, I was invited to join the great folks at Astia. So I moved over into the field service management industry, which uh, is a really interesting place because it is where all the cutting edge and, and disruptive and, and emerging technology is actually coming to bear. And again, we are, we are working with some really fabulous organizations as clients. So I've been, I've been really lucky to constantly be surrounded by not only great mentors, but great clients, you know, that I can steal the, the best nuggets of what they've learned too. Very impressive, Dave. Thank you so much for all that. I can, I can see how you've evolved now a lot more. And I just have to say, astounding. Great. David, I want to jump uh, way off track here and take a risk that you can bring us back into the mainstream. Um, I read someplace that uh, you have uh, an interest in photography, outdoor photography, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. All right. You sound to me clearly like a very logical left brain rational computer coder 
uh, structure, organization kind of a guy. And I'm just wondering if there's something about photography, whether it's watching the way light plays off a subject or composition or capturing motion or whatever it is that intrigues you that expands your view of what can be a very cold and calculated business world. Yeah, it's, um, it's probably a bigger part of me than comes across during uh, business oriented interviews. So, uh, so again, you know, just like I said about working with great mentors and working for good organizations and working with great clients, I am the byproduct of a very good upbringing. So my mom was a woman executive before uh, women executives uh, were very popular, like they are today. Uh, but my father is an artist, a full-time artist. He is a decoy carver. And the story of his time along the Delaware River learning to carve decoys, uh, for anyone not familiar, a, a decoy is a, is a handmade wooden duck designed to float out in the water. And it's what was used by the early hunters to draw in other waterfowl. And of course, uh, they would shoot them and then they would sell them on the market or or eat them or do whatever they did with them. Um, but but my, my father, is uh, that's what he does for a living. He carves, he paints, and he's, he's pretty well known in that, that niche as one of the top um, decoy carvers in the country. And we come from the Delaware River, which is the home of decoy carving. Many of the great old-time decoy carvers came from there. So I grew up in this environment where I had the two, both of those things very, very active in my life. And... Um, you know, maybe with a little bit of time and a little bit of maturity, I looked at my father and was able to see him doing what he loved every day. Uh, and, and I was able to kind of grow up a little bit and say, you know, that's really a much better measure of success in life as opposed to money, acclaim, books, all these other things. Are you really happy in what you're doing? So uh, photography was an outshoot of that because I grew up carving decoys. I'm very proud to be formerly my father's apprentice. And I just had a pair of decoys exhibited at the um, Trenton Museum, which is the New Jersey State Museum. So that's probably a once in a lifetime event for me. Although my father gets those kind of accolades constantly. He was invited to the White House, his stuff's in the Smithsonian. You know, so for me being in this New Jersey Museum as his son was a, you know, just a moment of real personal satisfaction and a feeling success. But it, it does all fit together because I think one of the things that made me different when I was looking at what method should we use with these companies and, and defining that, I don't think I was limited by the, the conventional thoughts of somebody who came up as a programmer or came up as a strict business consultant or any of those things. I, I think my DNA was leading me towards a much more creative approach. And I was never, I, I never felt like I was cheating if I pulled on anything around me. So, so even today, with I like to think with my approach, if, if technology is the right answer one day, that's great. If really having a heart-to-heart sit-down conversation with an employee the next day is the answer, I'll do it. If I have to push the coffee cart around the office to make people feel good and connected, I'll do it. It doesn't matter what it takes. You just need to find the right ingredient to get the good people you work with to do their best, and I think you'll get there. This is The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and Michael Benner as co-host. Just ahead, David shares more insights and his contact info. 
But first, it's time for us to take a short break. See you back here in just a moment. Is it true that a majority of new businesses fail? Check this out. In order to have a successful growing business, there are some vital points that you must know. You must have worked them out thoroughly. They must be synchronized with each other and all employees, consultants, and companies that you depend on must know these items and be in agreement with them if your new business is to meet with a high percentage of success. Get it free. The Vision Map. Beat the odds for business success at TonyDURSO.com slash vision. Learn how to establish your vision, purpose, long-term objective, and master plan, including strategic and tactical planning. Get the Vision Map. Beat the odds for business success at TonyDURSO.com slash vision. V-I-S-I-O-N. Are you the right fit? We're looking for a few good sponsors that are the right fit for our world-class brand. The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso. Does your brand fit in with an audience that likes our interviews with Hollywood stars, sports greats, game changers? If so, let's see how we can promote your brand to the best audience to help you grow. Email me at Tony at TonyDURSO.com and let's see how we can help. That's Tony at TonyDURSO.com. Life is complicated and sometimes we all need a little help, but don't have the time for a full hour-long session or don't know who to turn to. That's where BetterHelp comes into play. With BetterHelp, I can get matched with one of over 2,500 licensed and approved counselors and therapists and get help anytime, anywhere, totally private. For a flat weekly fee starting at $35, I can connect with my counselor via text, chat, video conference, or phone, which is great for me because I'm always on the go. And I can go back to previous sessions whenever I want through my secure account from anywhere in the world. It's a great feeling to know that help is there, affordable, private, and convenient to my schedule. We all can use a little help. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash VA health and register for free. You can try it for seven days without being charged on your credit card and get matched with a licensed counselor usually within 24 hours. Get better help today at betterhelp.com forward slash VA health. You're listening to The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and a special VIP co-host. We'd love to hear from you via email. Be sure to send questions and comments to Tony at TonyDURSO.com. Now, back to The Spotlight. All right, we're back with Tony D'Urso on The Spotlight with former broadcast journalist and current personal development trainer, Michael Benner, as co-host. Today's show is with author, technology executive, and speaker, David Gianetto. He's a former U.S. Army officer and currently the COO of Astia International. All right, and now back to the chat. A lot of times my background sounds eclectic to people, um, and maybe it is if you break it out into bits and pieces, but um, it was it's very much a normal part of my upbringing and, and growth and 
and all of that that kind of led me to this set of beliefs about what business should be. Right? Because in looking at my father's success, still at the end of the day, I think that even the employees uh, or, or the clients, right, whose performance is enabled by our technology, they still need to feel good about what they do. And you've got to, as a manager or a leader, you're responsible to figure that out and to be a custodian of that. So I'm wondering if business uh, needs to consider, I think in some ways, in some areas they already have begun to do this, but do you think there should be more emphasis on a second bottom line, which is beyond profitability and performance and growth and, again, the left brain analytical stuff that, you know, drives uh, profit and market share and so on. If we should have another bottom line about are our employees happy? Do they feel fulfilled? Would they want their friends to work at this company? Um, I think we need more of that. You seem like a very integrated, holistic kind of a guy. Just wondering how you feel about that. Well, I mean, I... I think that I am always at the end of the day, very, very conscious that, you know, revenue minus expense equals profit and everything has to fit into that equation, whether it's soft or hard, you know, people, process or technology, it doesn't matter. It's all about influencing that equation. And at the same time, I happen to believe that happy employees who would happily recommend your company to their best friend or their spouse or somebody that they care about or love, um, it, it does positively influence that profit equation. So while I'm not one uh, who really buys into this, to, to this um, massive empowerment of, of soft aspects of employer responsibility, I do believe that it, it really benefits every company to, to have good, happy people because if nothing else, they won't seek to go elsewhere and you have the longevity and of course, you could always choose to let somebody go if they're not a good performer, but you don't want them leaving because they're unhappy. That, uh, and I really believe that that's not a, it is a management responsibility, but I think that that is the, almost the ethical responsibility of anyone who chooses to assume a management or leadership position. And I, I respect that not everyone feels that way. Some people just strictly look at the bottom line and they don't factor those things in. But I think it's, I think it's you know, going to battle with, with only one gun on your hip because the soft aspects can be just as powerful. Um, you know, and that, that plays out in technology too. I mean, if you look at some of the changes we've made in the last two years in our technology to Stia, uh, we've really focused on how do you increase user adoption and satisfaction of the technology because when you don't have those two things going in your favor, it's really hard to get traction in the company, in, in the client organization, which makes it harder to grow your footprint, to bring more users on, to do more service work for them. So it, it's not just about my own employees. It's about how do the employees in our client organizations feel too. And a lot of times that's not factored in. You just go after the leadership because they hold the purse strings. Um, but, but a lot of those employees are influencers that you really should pay attention to. Yeah, real well, real well said. Thanks for that. Dave, we hear a lot about this these days, and we mentioned it just a little bit here and there in our interviews so far. For our audience, could you help define and explain the difference between emerging tech and disruptive technology? Uh, I, I think they are the same exact thing. 
It's just that companies uh, who are really good at accepting and dealing with change, especially technology change, call call them and deal with them as emerging technology that can be leveraged. Those competitors in the same industry who are maybe a little more antiquated in their mindset, maybe have a little bit more uh, antiquated technology stack, um, they look at those as disruptive technologies because it's putting them at a disadvantage within their industry. Now, Disruptive also sometimes has this connotation that it's disruptive because it's upsetting the norms of the industry. And, uh, but I think that's okay. You know, the good companies, if we say that adaptive companies are, are good, if we accept that logic, then good companies, adaptive companies um, can change their business model. I, I mean, look at one of the companies that's really leveraged emerging technology better than almost anyone else. It's Amazon. You know, and there's a lot of misconceptions about what Amazon was when it started and what it became. It started as a company that was using technology to overcome some very obvious and inherent flaws in the book industry. Right? I know this because I've, I've published three books. And no one brick-and-mortar store could have the entire catalog of all possible books available in a brick-and-mortar store. It just couldn't happen. Everyone in the book industry knew this was a problem, right? How do you get your book into that most valuable space? And at the same time, the the buying population, the, the consumers, they want exposure to more books than you can fit in one bookstore. So both sides were losing. Amazon and those folks there were really good at seeing this problem and using emergent technology, the internet, and, and all the nuances that they put to work for them. Um, using that emerging technology really well. And from there, they've continued to march forward and expand it, and they've never been scared of new emerging technology as it comes out. Uh, and, and that's why you see them going into so many different areas because they are almost the disruptor. The technology is secondary, right? The technology of, a, of Uber wasn't in and of itself disruptive. It's the company that took that and changed the industry that is disruptive. So the technology will just sit there. It, it comes up a lot in my line of work because in field service right now, all of these emerging technologies that you're hearing so much about, Internet of Things, artificial reality, artificial intelligence, uh, some aspects of machine learning and knowledge management, all those things are out there and the buzz is so tremendous. And the organizations we work with, which are loosely defined as any service-driven organization, any organization that puts, uh, let's say, 50 or more technician service people out into the field, that's who we work with. That's who we deliver technology to. could be anyone from a a pest-killing company all the way up to somebody going out and doing HVAC work or fixing computers. It doesn't matter. They're all service organizations. This is the industry where those companies could really benefit from this technology but they don't, they're not in the business of taking emerging technology and turning it into something that drives business value. So we have to do that inside of Astia. So we take augmented reality. We look at that technology and we say, okay, how can these companies benefit from it? What's the right way to integrate it into our solution? Who are the best breed partners that we should be working with? And how do we give that to them in a form that they can pick it up the very next day and they can apply it to their business, and they can do very tangible things. For example, they can increase first-time fix rate. That's the measure or metric that they would be going after. They can overcome the bigger problematic issue of um, 
less people want to become service technicians today. That's not where uh, younger generations want to take their career. So we have an aging workforce. Well, this, this uh, less skilled, younger workforce that's coming into the market go out there and work on much more complicated, much more connected set of devices than ever before and still do it productively. Well, why don't we connect them through augmented reality to very experienced technicians in the back office that are at the end of their career that still want to work and be productive, but they don't want to be out on the road turning wrenches or fixing things day in and day out. Um, so if you give clients the right solution, the right application of emerging technology, they will adopt it instantly because there's a, an inherent ROI in it. But if you don't do that, it just becomes disruptive over the course of time. Thanks for explaining all that. And as soon as you mentioned Amazon, I was there before Amazon when they started. And I still recall very clearly their motto was to get big as fast as possible. And for years, all their profits, any, if you want to call it profits, went right back in the organization. Their whole purpose was just to get market share, even at a loss, and become the giant that they are. And I thought that was a brilliant strategy and it worked for them. So it's it just amazing. And thanks for explaining all that. Dave, we've got a couple more minutes left. Before we go, I do want to make sure that we get any contact information if you want to provide any information for the audience on how to get a hold of you. Sure. You can always reach me uh, at Astia International, astia.com. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm the COO there. So I get the chance to work with great clients in the field service industry. So we're always happy to talk to anyone that uh, any service-driven organization or leader out there. Uh, you can follow me personally on Twitter, you know, at DGNetto. Go to gianetto.com. It's a little bit hard to spell. Uh, so you could go to bigsocialmobile.com if you wanted to. And of course, speaking of Amazon, uh, you could always jump over to Amazon and find it pretty easily. Very cool. Yeah, I got what might be a great way to close this. Uh, uh, David, uh, a real hero of mine, was the uh, late Buckminster Fuller. And uh, he he died, really, as the Internet was just beginning. So he didn't really see it. But um, nevertheless, he used to say in the 80s and before, we have all the right technology for all the wrong reasons. What do you think he might have meant by that? And how do you feel about it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I'm as clever as he is. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we think technology is really the solution. And I think we forget that technology is a piece of the solution. You know, Michael, you mentioned at the very beginning when you said, you know, where, where is the proper intersection of people, process, technology? And a lot of times people just want to buy the silver bullet. So they buy technology thinking it's going to solve the problems. But, but I can tell you firsthand, the clients that are most successful uh, at every stage of my career, uh, certainly right now at Astia, the clients that are most successful are the ones that understand that the technology is just the tool. Um, and it doesn't matter if we flash back to 20 years ago when it was a pen and paper or 10 years ago when it was a hardened device or today when it's a smart device with our technology running on it. That's the tool. It still comes down to uh, teaching and training your people, understanding what their job is, defining processes and structure that help them do that job more easily and efficiently. So don't, don't think that the technology is the be-all and end-all of solving this problem. 
you, you can't ignore the fact that at the end of the day, we are all still people coming together to into organizations to try to accomplish a shared objective. And um, I submit that any tool, technology or otherwise, that you can use to achieve that objective is something that a manager should be eager to understand and to apply. Yeah, I'll just say in parting, uh, David and Tony, that uh, I think we've just begun to scratch the surface with our computers and the cell phones, the ability to put a computer in your pocket was something I never considered when I was in school. And as you were saying, there were punch cards and, uh, you know, going back to Commodore 64s and cassette tapes and just the incredible, I mean, a hundred, a little over a hundred years ago, we had light bulbs, automobiles, and cars, and air conditioners come on the scene. It's only been three generations. It's like we just got here. And the potential of the internets, plural, and computers, and the decentralization of technology, I think is mind-boggling. And we've just begun to scratch the surface. It's it's not about putting pictures of your lunch online. It's, it's about solving some really massive problems that we face as uh, a global society and uh, right down to families and individuals. And it's a very exciting time to be alive if you think about it. What a uh, hyperbolic, you know, technology burst we're going through. It's just every day is really exciting. David, thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. And Tony, thanks for letting me be part of the show today. Thank you for your last question, by the way, Michael, and your insights, as always, is superior. And this is such a great interview with author, technology executive, and speaker, David Giannetto. That's the Italian way to say it, Giannetto. You got to put your fingers together and kind of raise them up in the air. Little, little. <laughs> I just love it. David, thank you so much for sharing all this. Really, really great, inspiring. And I just want to say, great interview. Thank you again. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Michael. And Michael, thank you for being such a great host. You're brilliant as always. And we look forward to your wisdom again on another episode of The Spotlight. And Flatter me, Tony, and I'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, Michael, and to our Spotlight audience. Thanks again. It's our honor to have you listen. All right. Keep your focus on success, and we'll see you next on The Spotlight. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Spotlight with Tony D'Urso and his special VIP co-host. Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Now, enjoy the weekend.